Be human, not concrete. The Harden Up Podcast with Joel Clapham. Hello and welcome to the second episode of this podcast. Thank you to everyone who listened to the first one and either gave it a rating on the podcast platform that you use, sent us an email, voted and commented on our podcast page on Spotify, or suggested the podcast to someone else. That you have opened your ears and your hearts and shared some time with me is pretty damn special. It means a lot, and I'm genuinely grateful. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. In between the last episode and now, it's been a full and productive time here at Hearten Up, as well as for me personally. Hearten Up's delivered training to more organisations, more people, more community groups. We've spoken at some workplace events for men's health and mental health in general, and started development of a few new services that will be launching early in the new year. I'm just about to hit the halfway mark in a graduate diploma in psychology that I started earlier in the year, and it marks the first year of what will be five or six years in becoming a psychologist. I began this year wanting to become a clinical psychologist, though I'm now a little more open-minded as to whether I might specialise in another field or whether that remains to be clinical psychology. And that's the benefit, I guess, of doing a shed load of study across all subfields, loving them all, and knowing that you can pick and choose which ones light you up the most. And that's pretty awesome. I've also hit an amusing milestone that's been coming for a few years now for me, and I have embraced the buzz cut. My hair had been thinning and receding for a while, and I've been resisting it and hoping that it wasn't quite as thin as I thought that it might be, but I've now come to accept that my days of even having just a little bit of length are behind me. My 13-year-old son was keen to do the barbering honours, which was kind of cool. He did a great job, and it was nice to do that together. We made a time-lapse video of it for posterity, and it caught some very funny facial expressions from both of us mostly wincing from me and some amused smiles from him. That's a really fun and sweet thing to have for our family memory bank. We're heading into Christmas, New Year and the summer holidays, and this can be a challenging time for many of us for all sorts of reasons. There's often some stress, some worry, some tension, some anxiety, and a general sense of unease is heightened for many people. While regularly experiencing and knowing these ups and downs are all part of the swings and roundabouts of life, it doesn't make it any easier in the lead up or at the time. And that is okay. We're human, we're imperfect, and we can only ever do the best we can with what we know at any particular point in time. We see how we go, we learn a little bit more, and we bring that new knowledge with us for the next time. That's the small incremental marker of evolution. All life forms are capable of it and programmed to evolve. But as humans, as sentient beings, we bring the option of focus and dedication and our big, wondrous brains. And that's a gift. So please go easy on yourself during this potentially challenging time. Or if it's a wonderful time for you, that is brilliant and beautiful. And I hope you have the best time. For this episode's deepish dive, we'll be taking a look at anxiety, including some useful ways that we can manage those feelings day to day. So please keep listening, and I hope you'll find one or two things that might be helpful for you. 
In October this year, findings of the most recently completed National Survey of Mental Health and Wellbeing were released. This is the most comprehensive national survey of mental health in Australia. It's used to shape policy development, service provision and funding decisions. It's part of the broader Intergenerational Health and Mental Health Study, funded by the Department of Health and Aged Care, and it's conducted by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The survey was conducted in two phases, firstly between December 2020 and July 2021, and then between December 2021 and October 2022. The survey gathers information about how many Australians have experienced mental illness, both in the previous 12 months or at some stage throughout their life the impact of these mental illnesses, health and other support services accessed by people and the effectiveness of these, and how many people have a lived experience of suicide and what services they might have used. Those who are invited to participate in this survey are residents in Australia aged 16 to 85, living in private dwellings in urban and rural areas in all states and territories. The survey does exclude people living in very remote areas and discrete Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, but the ABS says this is unlikely to impact national estimates, except for in the Northern Territory where the excluded population accounts for around 21% of people. It also excludes homeless people, residents in hotels, motels, hostels, hospitals, nursing homes, short-stay caravan parks, boarding houses and correctional institutions. And the ABS acknowledges these exclusions mean the results are likely to underestimate the prevalence of mental disorders in the Australian population. So it's quite a lot of people that aren't included in this survey or that aren't invited to participate in this survey. So we should bear that in mind when we look at these results. And we should also acknowledge that the statistics represent an underestimation of the prevalence of mental disorders in Australia. That aside, the 2023 findings include results from just under 16,000 Australian residents who did participate, either via a face-to-face interview or a video call interview with an ABS interviewer. And these people provided information where they were comfortable doing so about demographics like their age, gender, sexual orientation, country of birth, the main language they speak at home, and their marital or relationship status. They also talked about their household and socioeconomic characteristics. They discussed their general health and well-being, including their health status as they saw it, any psychological distress, any long-term health conditions, their feeling of social connectedness and functioning within society. People also talked with the interviewer about whether they might meet the diagnostic criteria of any one of many mental illnesses, including depression, anxiety disorders and substance use problems. These diagnostic criteria are defined in both the World Health Organization's World Mental Health Survey Guidelines and the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. All of this background material sets the scene for what we're going to look at next, and that's the key headline statistics of the most recent National Survey of Mental Health and Wellbeing in Australia. This survey identified that 21.5% of people had a 12-month mental disorder, so that experienced a mental illness according to this criteria in the previous 12 months. That's up from 20% when the survey was last conducted in 2007. Of these mental illnesses that people have experienced, 17.2% had experienced anxiety in the previous year. That's up from 14.4% in 2007. 7.5% of people had experienced a depressive disorder. That's up from 6.2%. 3.3% of people had experienced a substance use disorder or a substance use problem. And that's down from 5.1% when this survey was last conducted 
in 2007. A significant finding, though, is the wide variation between people according to their sexual identity, their sexual preferences. So we have 21.5% of people experiencing a mental illness in the previous 12 months. Of those, heterosexual people experience this at a level of 19.9%, so marginally below the national average. People who identify as LGBTIQA experience mental illness in the previous 12 months at a level of 58.7%. That's almost three times the level of heterosexual people. So for those of us who are or who know people who identify as non-heterosexual, it is well worth us bearing in mind and being alert and cognizant of the fact mental illnesses are three times more likely to be experienced by people in this section of the population. Other interesting stats worth us absorbing is that 42.9% of people in the age range of 16 to 85 experienced a mental illness at some point throughout their life. When this survey was last conducted in 2007, that figure was 45%. So there's a marginal decrease, which is really interesting. 17.4% of people said they had seen a health professional for their mental health in the 12 months prior to participating in the survey. And that's up from 12% in 2007. So that's a 5.4% increase of people who had been to see a health professional purely for their mental health in the 12 months beforehand since 2007. I think that's great. That's more people who are saying or acknowledging, I don't feel at my best. I think there could be an issue here and I'm going to see a professional about this. I think that's a fantastic increase. Across genders, 51.1% of females had been to see a health professional compared to 36.4% of males. So fellas, we still have a long way to go when it comes to acknowledging that we don't feel at our best, there might be a problem here, and that we should draw on the expertise of a medical professional. If you are feeling less than your best, please see someone. It's not a bad thing to ask someone who knows more than you to help you with a problem that you're experiencing. That humility and that openness is a strength, not a weakness. So men, if you're feeling a little bit less than your best, talk with someone, please. That's what they're there for, and it's something you might benefit from. When it comes to seeing a health professional for mental health problems, people in the age range of 16 to 34 had decided to see a medical professional for help with their mental health at a level of 46.2%. How fantastic is that? Almost half of the people in the age range of 16 to 34 who didn't feel as though they were living as they would like to be, almost half of them had gone to see somebody about that. And that is brilliant. We contrast that though with people who are age 65 and older. 35.1% of people had been to see a health professional for their mental health in the previous year. So young people, you are leading the way when it comes to drawing on the support, the guidance and the expertise of people regarding our mental health. That's brilliant. The National Survey of Mental Health and Wellbeing is only one of a number of data sources that shape and influence mental health policy in Australia. But it's the key starting point and its underlying basis that guides government decision making. So that's why we talk about it. That's why it's important for us to be aware of and have at least a sense of what things are like in the Australian community. Some of the other key reports and surveys that are incorporated and that are absorbed and used by those who work in the mental health sector include Medicare benefits schedule data, the ABS, causes of death in Australia, which is released each year and from which we get the death by suicide statistics. National government agencies and hospitals and clinics and community health services all publish their own data and provide this into a pool of information that the sector draws on. 
The National Mental Health Commission and the Productivity Commission conduct their own reports and analysis of all of this data and their own surveys and research studies. There's also a range of research reports and studies from not-for-profit agencies like Beyond Blue, for one example, as well as universities, lobby groups and consulting firms that look at particular issues and particular sections of the population and analyse what's going on and publish their own findings. In case you're interested and curious, a link to the National Survey of Mental Health and Wellbeing and a list of some of the other sources of data is published on our website at heartenup.com.au forward slash podcast in the episode resources. For our deepish dive this episode, we'll be taking a look at the most commonly experienced mental illness as consistently identified in data and surveys, and that's anxiety or anxiety disorders. The American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the widely referred to source for definitions and diagnostic criteria of mental health problems, describes anxiety disorders in this way. Anxiety disorders include disorders that share features of excessive fear and anxiety and related behavioural disturbances. Fear is the emotional response to real or perceived imminent threat, whereas anxiety is anticipation of future threat. Obviously, these two states overlap, but they also differ, with fear more often associated with surges of autonomic arousal necessary for fight or flight, thoughts of immediate danger and escape behaviours, and anxiety is more often associated with muscle tension and vigilance in preparation for future danger and cautious or avoidant behaviours. Anxiety disorders differ from one another in the types of objects or situations that induce fear, anxiety or avoidance behaviour and the associated cognition. Anxiety disorders differ from developmentally normative fear or anxiety by being excessive or persisting beyond developmentally appropriate periods. They differ from transient fear or anxiety, are often stress-induced, and by being persistent, for example, typically lasting six months or more. Although the criterion for duration is intended as a general guide with allowance for some degree of flexibility and is sometimes shorter in duration in children. That's the APA's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual on Anxiety Disorders, but let's break it down and have a look at it in everyday language. The more common anxiety disorders include post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, social anxiety, agoraphobia, which is the fear of open spaces and usually presents as being unable to leave the home, generalized anxiety, panic disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. There are more, but these are the ones that we might be familiar with. Anxiety might feel and look different for each person. Here are some of the common symptoms people can experience and that we might notice in ourselves or in other people. Feelings of excessive fear, of not being safe, restlessness, unable to sit still or focused, feeling tense, wound up, and edgy. Thoughts where we might be worrying a lot, obsessive thinking about events and people, and creating or reviewing scenarios in our mind to the point of catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is perceiving things as far worse than they perhaps are, and expecting the worst case of any situations we might find ourselves in. Physically, we might experience anxiety through a quickened heart rate, churning guts, nausea, regular constant headaches, a dry mouth, jelly-like limbs, hot and cold flushes, tightening of the chest and difficulty breathing, and our sleep can be interrupted because we can't relax mentally or physically, and we might even have a panic attack or multiple panic attacks. Let's have a look at anxiety as a normal and healthy process and then see where it can go wrong. We all experience moments and situations of feeling anxious, which are completely normal and all part of the human experience. Anxious feelings are our body's way of telling us that it doesn't feel comfortable or perhaps safe at that particular moment. Our body enters the fight or flight response mode. It releases cortisol and adrenaline 
and other hormones in order to put us on alert and in a state of readiness for quick escape or self-defense from perceived danger. These stress hormones allow our body to move more quickly and with less conscious decision-making. They're a positive thing in the right situation. Evolutionally, this has held us in good stead when our primal ancestors faced significantly more physical danger than we perhaps do today. Sensing danger or risk, their body became physiologically aroused and prepared for what might threaten us. It's a good thing that the body does that. These days, though, that feeling and response is also really helpful in the right situations, like walking alone in a new area. We might scan around a little more hawkishly and nervously. Or if we're in a fast-moving vehicle and we know how dangerous conditions are. Or if someone is leering at us and seems a little bit off or threatening. Those situations are ideal for us to feel anxious. And our body becomes alert and tells us that we should be ready for something to potentially happen. That is healthy anxiety. That is a positive thing when our body tells us something could be a little bit off here. Let's just be a little bit alert. The trouble though is when we're outside of those dangerous situations and we still experience overwhelming feelings of anxiety. And the really interesting dynamic at play here is something we might not be aware of. That's between our body, which includes the brain as an organ, and our mind, which is our sense-making and storytelling machine. Our body though is where emotions are first experienced in response to a situation. Think about a time you felt nervous. You might have felt the hairs on your arms or neck stand on end. Your throat might have constricted. Your mouth and tongue might have dried up. Your stomach might have started churning a little bit. Your arms and legs might have become a little bit wobbly or a little bit extra alert in case they needed to suddenly take off. You might have even felt a sense of heat across your torso and in your head. These are all normal. They're a response to a neurochemical process happening in our body as a result of feeling uncertain. However, our mind is not always our best friend in this scenario. Our mind looks to the familiar and the known, and so it looks to past experiences and tells us that what we're experiencing now is very similar or very much like what we've experienced before. As an entity, our mind doesn't know what it doesn't know. In times of high stress and anxiety, our well-intentioned friend, the mind, will try and compare the present situation to past experiences because they're familiar and tell us that it's just like that. But when it's not, that's when we have a real problem, especially if we've experienced trauma in the past or traumatic events, traumatic experiences. And as a brief definition, is any occasion where we feel as though our physical or psychological safety is under threat. In the past, our mind would have told us and our body to get ready in case something was going to happen. And because the mind is biased towards what it knows and what is familiar, when it feels those similar physiological sensations occurring within our body again, it will tell us that it's just like it was in the past. That's why people can experience ongoing trauma. They can become stuck in fight or flight mode or freeze mode because of the events and experiences they've had in the past and their mind telling them that what's going on now is just the same. What we end up with at that point, though, is a physiological and mental reaction that could be disproportionate and out of alignment with the current reality. As an example, we can't be sure if a ladder that we're about to step on is sturdy or not. But experiencing a physiological response at a level similar to being assaulted and in fear of our life is not healthy. Anxiety becomes problematic when we're unable to regulate the physical reaction. We aren't able to challenge the internal voice that tells us the threat is ongoing and perhaps everywhere, whether it is or not. And we can get stuck in fight, flight or freeze mode. And that affects our thoughts, our feelings and our behaviours. And to kick a few myths in the dick, anxiety and anxiety disorders are not just something weak or broken people experience. They are not the result of someone overthinking, though this can be a symptom, or from worrying too much. 
Someone experiencing anxiety will not benefit from being told to suck it up, get over it, or snap out of it. Just in case I need to say this louder for those at the back, anxiety disorders, when prolonged, can dominate our physical and mental state and severely hinder our life. They are medically diagnosable, treatable, manageable, and in good news, mostly recoverable from. What we can do to manage times of stress and feelings of anxiety is to regulate them. This is when we actively take steps to show our body and our mind that we are in fact safe and it's okay to stand down. It's like we're saying, thank you, I appreciate the heads up, I've had a quick evaluation of the situation and we're okay. That's regulation. Some of the ways we can do this include positive self-talk and affirmations, breathing exercises, meditation, sensory stimulation and anything else that helps brings us back into focusing on our body in the present moment. There's a common saying that depression is worrying about the past and anxiety is worrying about the future. Bringing ourselves into the present moment, right in the middle of those two things, through any healthy means, is helpful for reducing and managing anxiety. I know some of the things that I just mentioned might sound quite flowery and wanky, and I am willing to admit that a number of years ago I thought they were as well. But here's the thing, if you give them a go, they actually bloody work. And while they take some practice and getting used to, especially meditation, which isn't easy, they genuinely can and do help. In my line of work, I get to spend a lot of time listening to and talking with people of all backgrounds, ages, genders, work roles and life experiences. And most who have tried meditation agree that by persisting and continuing to practice meditation, you will be pleasantly surprised at the benefits of it. We're actually going to be publishing our first guided meditation just before Christmas. That's 2023 for anyone else listening later on. And it's just going to be a simple and helpful brief guided meditation to help you start or strengthen your meditation practice. So if you're into that, keep your eyes and ears out. When it comes to sensory stimulation, what I mean and what I find helpful for me, managing feelings of anxiety or stress, these things. The first is called the five things exercise, where we use our senses to focus on the environment around us at that particular time. So we have a look and a think. What are five things I can see? What are five things I can feel? What are five things I can hear? And so on. Something I picked up from Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist, is something called mindful dishwashing, which is both productive and it also helps us return our body to that present moment. And another simple but really effective tool that I find helpful for managing anxious feelings is grounding. That involves taking our shoes and socks off and connecting with the natural world. Sounds a little bit weird, but I find it really helpful and I don't care if anyone thinks it's strange because it's positive, it's harmless to other people and it's helpful for me. There's a worksheet about each of these things on our website at heartenup.com.au forward slash podcast. So check that out if you're curious to see a little bit more about each of those. So here you go. And I'd love to hear whether you find these things helpful or not. If we work on mindfulness and self-regulation and find it's not enough to help us day to day, we might be in territory where we need to consider whether our feelings of anxiety are becoming an anxiety disorder. It's okay if they are. They're medical conditions. That's when it's a good idea to get some professional support. And while unfortunately there's no three-point plan that either fixes or cures anxiety for everyone, there are a number of treatments which people can respond quite well to and find really helpful for them. Beyond Blue has some great information about these and there's a link to their resources on our website.
Before we wrap up this second episode, I'd like to announce something pretty cool and show my appreciation and gratitude by offering you something. Art Up has just launched a range of merchandise. T-shirts, hoodies and a tote bag just so far. More will be added over the coming months. It's all produced here in Melbourne and we're looking at ways to partner with small businesses and creative people to make it even more local and more regional wherever we can. As a listener of the podcast and therefore in my eyes a bloody good human being, you can use the code PODCAST for 20% off if you visit heartnup.com.au forward slash shop. That code, podcast, is valid until the end of the year and will give you 20% off anything you might choose to purchase. That brings us to the end of this episode, number two down. Thank you for your time, your ears, your hearts, your minds, and your company. It genuinely means the world to me. Take care of you, those you love. Go easy and gently on yourself by being human and not concrete.